Welcome to Farmer Talk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on how Eli Lilly is diversifying and engaging patients using decentralized clinical trial capabilities from the 2022 Patients as Partners in Clinical Research Summit. For more information about the Patients as Partners in Clinical Research Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit patientsaspartners.org. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Thanks very much, everyone. And um, Craig, I think it'd be great if you started off by just telling us a little about your team and what you all do, and I can briefly introduce myself and what we do and, and jump right in. I'd be happy to, and thank you for, uh, uh, for moderating this discussion. Thank you to the conference organizers for making this possible as well. This is an exciting opportunity to, uh, to be a part of this. Um, so my name is Craig Davenport. I've worked at Eli Lilly for 30 years, almost 30 years. Um, I worked as a clinical pharmacist prior to that, and I've worked in clinical research um, almost that entire period of time. My current role, um, as this slide says, is to lead an organization we call Site Engagement. And our Site Engagement organization is responsible for taking our draft protocols and presenting them to potential investigators and matching uh, their research interests with the research portfolio that, we're, that we are offering. Our staff works in 30 different countries. They actually are a field-based organization, and prior to COVID, they did all that work face-to-face, -face, and we learned how to do it virtually. Uh, but now we're uh, getting back to the field and having the opportunity to interact with, with potential investigators again. So we're excited to be uh, through this a bit in, in many countries. Great, thank you. And uh, I'm Marilyn Metcalf. I work at GSK on our patient-focused development team. Uh, we engage patients throughout medicine's development. I have um, one colleague here who does the same thing in a different therapy area. I work in oncology. And uh, we also um, work uh, across the organization with other colleagues who are engaging patients in various ways, as you'll hear later today and tomorrow. So uh, lovely to be back here. This is my favorite conference of the year every year. So uh, very excited to um, ask you about decentralized trials. And uh, let's just start by talking about which capabilities um, are really the greatest enablers for patient engagement. Thanks, Marilyn. You know, as we've kind of all been on this journey of you know, decentralized capabilities together, um, it's been an interesting way to kind of collect our thoughts about what's important, right? What actually makes a difference? Because there are a lot of, there are a lot of different ideas and some of which haven't been completely realized yet. Um, others that are, you know, had been in practice even before we coined the acronym decentralized clinical trials, things like um, electronic clinical outcomes assessments on tablet computers, right? Suddenly during COVID, we're like, that's a DCT capability, right? So um, there are things that we knew about before um, and things we're still learning about now. But I think we, we need to think about DCT capabilities in two important categories as it relates to engaging patients, right? There are those things that improve patient access, and there are those things that decrease patient burden, right? And so I put everything in one of those two buckets, if you will. Um, and we need to 
apply equal measures of both, right, if, we're, if we want to achieve the outcome of, you know, facilitating uh, patients' journey, you know, into and through clinical trials. So some DCT capability about improving access might be decentralization of the recruitment process. How do we move the screening activity or the randomization or enrollment process closer to the patient and not make them so dependent on the traditional way of you know, responding to an investigator's inquiry or an investigator's institution's advertisement? How do we empower patients and decentralize that recruitment process? Um, but also we need to think equally about how do we decrease the burden of being in the study, right? So things like decreasing the travel time that it takes to you know, move to a procedure? How do we move the procedure closer to the patient? Or how do we, how do we introduce fewer procedures? And I think, you know, it's important that we do both in equal measure, right? I think um, if we do one, uh, we improve access, but the, the protocol is still quite complex. We won't, you know, actually facilitate patients wanting to join. And if we're lopsided the other way, we have, you know, no access, but a very simple protocol. That's not the answer either, right? So I think we have to take uh, equal measures of both access and, and burden and look at them together. Yeah, that's a really sensible way to, to um, divide those. So, you know, knowing that some of these are working, then how do we better focus on them and really drive them forward as, as great practices? Mm -hmm. So I think that um, as it relates to the, the specific solutions and, and how we focus on the enablement of it. Um, it takes us all working together. I think we realize over time, right, that it's not clinical research uh, sponsors, right, who enroll patients in clinical trials. And it's not investigators, ultimately, that enroll in clinical trials. It's the patient's decision, right? So when we think about DCT capabilities, it's really about screening those ideas past the patients and what their reaction um, to this is going to be. We all have great ideas. There are third parties, companies, vendors, and partners here today that have products and offerings that they uh, put out there that can make it better for patients to, um, their uh, experience in clinical trials can be better, but it's, it's uh, imperative that we all like take the big next step, which is to talk to patients about it. What do they think? Right. What are they going to, how are they going to react? Yeah. What we're all about, right? <laughs> so um, which of the elements of decentralized trial support, uh, diversity and engagement, mm -hmm. engaging patients more readily? Yeah. So how, how do we really support that diversity? So th I think this is an important topic for us all, and we're, we all have maybe specific experiences. So maybe let me highlight just one that I think is um, uh, important or that we have found to be effective, right? So, um, and I think that's about moving the research itself closer to the patient community, moving it to the patient community that you're trying to enable, that you're trying to empower, right? Clinical research, you know, has been, it's kind of like the penultimate form of healthcare as we heard Karen describe earlier today, right? It's, it's big. It's frightening. It's technically complicated. It's very demanding. It's often conducted in elite institutions, right? It should be no surprise to us that it has been difficult 
you know, to access patients uh, because of that dynamic that has existed for decades, right? Um, so I think the, the act of moving the research closer to the community and empowering these diverse communities to evaluate it, right, is, is fundamental to building trust, right? How we do that, I think, is getting closer to the patient. Um, I, I doubt it, that, that the solution is, you know, more centralized advertising campaigns from large teaching hospitals, right? I don't think that's going to be what builds trust and attracts attracts patients to clinical trials and helps them understand it. I think it's about getting closer to the patient community itself. Yeah, sounds like exactly what we should be doing. Are you finding some common barriers as you're uh, trying to do that? As I was thinking about that and our experience in the last few years, I, I was kind of reminded of that. Um, what's the famous saying? It's like, we have we have identified the enemy and they are us, right? I, I, I was oh, like, no. well, you know, the, the, um, I think the, the barrier I have found, you know, in, in going through this implementation, whether it's about improving access or decreasing patient burden, there's two, there's two big barriers, right, categories of barriers. One is the system that we operate in as sponsors of clinical trials. For, again, decades, we have fine-tuned this complicated machine to be as efficient as possible, right? We have centralized databases, standardized technology, beautiful procedures, complicated forms, right, to fill out that make the process more and more and more rigid and less adaptable to the, to the situation we find ourselves in now, right? Which is, we need to try something new. We need to do this a different way. COVID was this pivot point for us, which said under these dire circumstances, we could do something different. And we saw that happen, right? And now we reflect that in the operating system that we work in as pharmaceutical companies doing R&D. And we say, this is completely incompatible <laughs> with the technology that we use, or we need to relook at our procedures. So um, it's up to us, I think, to make this change. Initially in the journey, and I'd, I'd be interested if, if we have time for some questions, what some of the rest of you have found, that we were first asking ourselves, will regulators accept this? Is this okay to, to do clinical research this way? And we spent, you know, the first year going through regulations from all of the countries and looking for, you know, the potential barriers there. That's not really the barrier, right? Regulations are in many times written in general ways that don't talk about ECOA. They don't talk about mobile research units. They don't talk about community screening. So there's no disallowment of those things. It's more so our procedures internally that have created the barriers, not so much the regulation. Now, that's not to say that there aren't some questions that we all have about how regulators will respond to this, right? Many of us have asked this, you know, what will we do in the case of an inspection? What documentation will we show, right? How will we show conformance with our procedure? But really, the, I think the onus is back on us as sponsors to make this big pharma feeling much smaller and much more normal. Yeah. And then as you 
continue down that path? Are you also finding that in addition to those general barriers, there are some barriers that are kind of varying according to the therapy area? So we, we do something, Marilyn, we started doing something a couple years ago at Lilly um, specific to therapeutic area, but also ties into diverse patient populations. So we, we took a page out of some, a playbook that our commercial or our marketing organization was doing years ago. They started to do something called patient journeys, where they're trying to better understand the experience that the patient was having taking a medicine that had been launched into a, into a market and um, using it as a way to better understand how to communicate with the patient. And so we took a page out of that book and said, well, what if we matched therapeutic areas with diverse patient groups very deliberately and went through this patient journey process, not just about um, any patient, but about a specific patient and specific diseases that they have. And so we've completed a few of those. So for example, we've done an African-American clinical trial patient journey for patients in oncology, and we worked with patients, we worked with investigators, we worked with community leaders to map that out and understand the experience more specifically that then can go back and inform the process, and go back and inform then the protocols that we write and how we interact with patients when we do oncology studies. I think the, the risk we need to watch out for is that we don't overgeneralize this idea, right? As patients ourselves, sometimes we want to apply our own experience um, and generalize that, you know, to others, right? So there are certainly pressures inside of my company to say, okay, we've done a few of those patient journeys. Have we learned enough? <laughs> right? I, I, we shouldn't think that we're ever done learning what that is about, right? I can't assume that uh, an African-American patient with oncology uh, with, uh, with cancer, and what we learned from that is equally applicable to a Latinx patient in the United States with diabetes, and that that should be, you know, that learning should be transported. At a high level, yeah, maybe there are some th themes that are similar. You know, there are themes about trust, there are themes about convenience, but I think the devil is in the details. I mean, we have to get down to the specifics of what is it that is gonna make this better for these patients with this disease um, and not you know, keep it at such a high level. As Karen said this morning, like we, we need to break it down into smaller, more normal pieces um, so that we can uh, talk in more real, plain language to patients with their specific disease in their specific circumstances. Um, and I guess, you know, if we're thinking about diversity, we're also recognizing that there are a lot of cross-cutting categories, right? So ethnicity is one, age is another, right. gender is another, uh, rural or urban, socioeconomic. There are, you know, many others to be thinking about as well. And That's even so, with all those categories, there are still individual patient needs, as you were saying, That's you know, just a single person their preferences, as well as the scientific needs of the study. So are, are there ways that you're able to kind of match those? So that's complicated, right? So um, we've had internal discussions about this, right? Because we have this tendency as large pharma, we want to standardize the process, right? So this idea of 
mixing and matching and being more customized at that level becomes quite challenging. And even within a specific trial, then there are questions about how common or standardized does the experience need to be for any particular patient, right? People will say, you know, to me, Craig, like, okay, as we design protocols, this can't be like a choose your own adventure type of thing, right? Like, you can choose any path through this clinical trial that you want. It's research and it has structure associated with it. That being said, I may just tell a little bit of a story about um, something we did a couple of years ago during COVID, right? So many of you know, Eli Lilly uh, has studied three different COVID antibodies, and in the, in the heat of that battle, um, we made a decision to outfit what we call mobile research units. So we took recreational vehicles and we turned them into mobile clinics to enable bringing clinical research to nursing homes, right? Patients couldn't leave the nursing home uh, to receive the therapy, so we took the therapy and the study to them. Right? Now, if we were very myopic about that, we would say, well, we just now need to wait at Lilly until we find the next study that's applicable to be done in nursing homes, and that's how we will use these mobile research <laughs> units again. Um, but we've you know, looked at ways to like, customize that or adapt that into different settings, right? So how could we use that type of mobile technology in a different patient community in a different disease under different circumstances conceptually it's applicable you know in a in a new way or in a different way how can we make it smaller and more customized to a particular need so we had um, for example specific equipment that was needed in a study where retinopathy was an endpoint we needed to put special eye examination equipment into these mobile research units and move those to the patients. It was more convenient for us to take the testing to them than it was for them to go to the testing. Perfect application, right? And it just took somebody to, you know, ideate on that, say like, how could I apply this in a different way that allows us to access patients, both improve access and decrease burden, right? Yeah, kudos to you all for being so creative and continuing to push that envelope. It's not easy, we know, as we heard <laughs> earlier today, you know, finding, you know, the process of matching, you know, investigators in and of itself to something like that is challenging, right? When you actually are driving your clinic around between states, for example, there are real rules and laws that govern some of that as well. So I don't mean to suggest in any way that it's simple, uh, but I think, you know, we're breaking down these, we're solving these problems and breaking down these barriers one at a time. Yeah, yeah, and the rewards are definitely worth it. For sure. Well, we have just under two minutes. If we have any quick questions from the audience as well, please come up to the microphone so we can hear you. If we wait for somebody to come up to the mic, I might <clears throat> tell a story in reflection. I remember maybe 25 years ago, my department head coming up and asking me to react to a slide that she had given me. And uh, the slide showed the graphic of what was obviously a patient in the middle and, you know, our clinical research functions, you know, in a ring around the outside. And she asked me, again, almost 30 years ago, what do you, th what do you think about this idea? What, what do you think if we put the patients in the middle of everything that we do, like, oh, that's a yeah, that's a great idea. Let's let's do that, right? Let's do that. 
And, um, you know, years, years went by, and it was probably only because of, you know, patient advocacy that we're hearing about here today, pushed pretty hard by the pandemic, that I think formed the breakthrough that we really needed to make that happen in a real way, right? Not just in a theoretical way that we were talking about in a conference room. So I'm so motivated and inspired really by what we're seeing here now because I think we've actually got the momentum to really change how this works, finally, right? Finally, and uh, that's, that's exciting. Sure. Yeah, and I, I will say to acknowledge uh, the conversation from earlier this morning, I think I hear from both you and, and uh, from our company that it's a lot more about partnership as well, um, that it's not so much just staring at the patient in the center. But in the middle of a slide. No, it's not. Interaction. It's not about so. the slide with the graphic on it. It's actually going out and meeting the patient. Yeah. I right. think Luther. Oh, we sure. have a question? Yes, okay. I decided to stand here so that I wouldn't take away any of your time. Oh. Um, so, so, Craig, I think the work that you're doing, you, you kept saying closer to the community, but I think you've given some really great examples of moving research into the community. And uh, two quick questions. How many of those mobile vans do you have? And are there other examples of how you've moved research into the community uh, itself that you could share with us? Yep, I can answer both. The first number is, I think, 15, uh, 15 of them. And we've, we moved from a situation where they were centralized to actually now garaging them around the country and working with partners to staff them because it's obviously not a simple thing to do to have a fleet of 15 or 20, you know, mobile research units with, you know, high-tech equipment on them that need to be staffed with nurses. And we also need to match them with investigators, right? They just can't go out and start doing things. It's not like a bookmobile, right, where they're just opening up the back and saying, come in and <clears throat> have, have a look at our paperback books. Um, so about 15. Another example I'll, I'll share of something that we have done in some Alzheimer's disease studies, we have um, partnered with investigators in local communities where they are, at, they are, the investigators are connected with local patient advocacy groups. And the investigators often already participate in some type of community outreach programs, right, where they're working just as a clinician, you know, working in the community uh, with groups of patients in specific diseases. So we've taken to actually matching up now these mobile research units with these investigators. And so we'll say to them, you know, if you want, you know, for your upcoming event that you're doing um, in your community, would you like us to deploy this mobile research unit there and put that there at the same time? Makes a world of difference, right? The difference between having a card table and chairs under a tent and actually something that looks like a clinic there in the parking lot, actually. I think as a patient, you would be more confident with that, right? Um, uh, so that's maybe an example where we've used them in community screening activities. To uh, wrap up this section, I see Kate moving the chairs, getting ready for the next. So let's give a big round of applause for this fireside uh, chat. For the wonderful, wonderful job. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Patients as Partners Summit, our editorial, 
podcasts, and webinars, please visit patientsaspartners.org. Thank you.